You're listening to the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast brought to you by New Ultra. My name is Lucy Dia and I'm a third year student dietitian. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by specialist hormental feeding dietitian Emma Green. In this episode, Emma will share her experience working as a hormental tube feeding dietitian. We will discuss the role of a dietitian in enteral feeding, the key factors to consider when devising a feeding regime, and Emma will share her top tips for managing enteral nutrition. Without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Emma to introduce herself. Hi Lucy, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, so yeah, my name's Emma. Um, I am a specialist home enteral tube feeding dietitian. Um, I've been working as a dietitian now for just over two and a half years. Um, I've always been quite community based. So I've been a band five community and then progressed into specialist um, HEF. Um, I also run my own say blog kind of website type of thing um, Emma's food stories where I try and create educational content but create make it as real as possible um, for people I know some things can feel a bit robotic and chugged out so try and relate to people and um, help students out as much as I can because I feel like that was something that was missing during my time um, so yeah <laughs> that's a, that's a little bit about me <laughs> And can you tell us a bit about your own journey from being a student dietitian to where you are now? Yeah, so um, yeah, so being a student, I didn't go in probably the the automatic conventional way of starting as an undergrad. Um, I actually did nutritional sciences as an undergraduate degree. Um, I didn't really know what dietetics was until my first year of nutrition. Um, and then it kind of got explained to me. And then I was like, oh, that's that's what I want to do. Um, but I'm glad I went around it the long way round because I got kind of my undergrad university experience and got my baseline nutrition knowledge. But then I also then got to do my two years in dietetics to kind of underpin all that knowledge and get the extra learning, get the placement experiences and um, things like that. Um, so yeah so I did five years all in all which is probably longer than the traditional three what people do now um, but I'm so glad I went that way instead because that means that I feel like I was a bit more mature when I went into it as I feel like if I went into dietetics when I was 21 I would still be quite still quite fresh and new and not get my head down as much but um, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that but um, I think personally this way for me that was the best Um and then, yes, yeah, so then I got my job as a BAM5. I originally worked in a private health company, which is, um, again, a bit non-conventional for people who um, are kind of looking for jobs at the moment. Um, unfortunately, I only worked there for about 12 weeks because the company then got taken over by an NHS service. Um, and then I worked there as a BAM5 community um, for three months. And then I went to a, another trust after that, um, just because it was closer to home for me and easier to get to. Um, and then the pandemic hit. So I've been working kind of through the pandemic ever since. Um, and that's when I then got my HEF role. Um, I think I was one of the like last interviews to be done face to face for my uh, before COVID, which seems really strange. So um, and yeah, so I've been doing um, HEF since June 2020 now, which um, feels like forever, but also the shortest amount of time ever. So, um, yeah, and I know there's lots of kind of questions about HEF as well, because I know personally as a student, HEF wasn't spoken about or not really picked up on as much as other topics. So, yeah, it's great. It's a really great role. So I'm re- I really enjoy it at the moment, which is fab. Brilliant. That sounds like you've had a really interesting journey throughout. So just touching on that then, can you tell us what is the role of a dietitian in home mental feeding? 
Um, yeah, so home ventral tube feeding, it's, it is what it says on the tin, but also there's a lot more kind of complex things to it. So home entral tube feeding is people who are entrally fed at home. So that doesn't include parental feeding. So um, that's also, that's covered by a specialist intestinal failure unit in the area. Um, but any other tube feeding, NGs, um, jejunostomy feeding, gastrostomy feeding, um, we cover. Um, we also do mixes of other stuff as well. So we don't just do purely tubes. We do um, nutrition support, um, we do diabetes, um, we don't work in the specialist weight management service, but we do provide um, weight management education for people who are housebound. Um, and then, yeah, just a range of different things, really. So, um, yeah, I do. I am specialist in HEF, but I do kind of dab into other areas as well. Still, still keep up my band five skills, things like that. Um, so HEF itself is yeah the management of tubes, kind of care of tubes, right and feeding regimes, things like that, um, is quite admin based to HEF is so a lot of the things are documentations we write a lot of letters write reports attend meetings um working out kind of what deliveries people are getting um looking at stock management things like that but then we also do kind of your traditional writing feeding regimes kind of doing um tube care in the community um it can be a bit more difficult than it can be on the wards because obviously you don't have that full team kind of acting on people so that's where we're kind of the person to go in and think oh this person kind of really needs help with this so let's organize that to be done so we can't just go and ask we have to <laughs> everything's a bit more long-winded um but yeah um it's it's really quite a varied role to be honest people might just think oh it's just doing writing tube um feeding regimes all day which probably i write one feeding regime a week on average so um a lot of it is um reviewing and maintenance and a lot of um kind of mental health and well-being support for these patients as well yeah it definitely does sound extremely varied and you've you've got a lot to manage at one time so what does a typical work week look like for you um so a typical work week mm, I wouldn't say there's one that's ever typical. I, um, things change very often. We we go on kind of emergency visits all the time. So um, in my trust, the dietitians have tube training. So we're kind of the equivalent of nutrition nurses as well. Um, so we, we could be called out at the drop of a hat to go visit someone 25 miles away to go sort out an emergency. Um, but on a standard week, I'll probably... Um, I usually see about four to six patients a day um, and then I'll have like telephone consultations and admin work in between. Um, I do a day of nursing home visits a week as well, sometimes two. Um, they, they do include two patients, but a lot of them are kind of your nutrition support patients in the community, people who might have been discharged from hospital and need to follow up. Um, I also attend kind of MDT meetings, so that's for more of our complex patients. So that can be on a monthly rotor for a certain GP practice, or it can be um, there's been concerns raised about a certain person. So we're having a big meeting with all the staff members together. Um, I also do tube training as well. So um, I go to new patients' houses who've maybe they've just come out of hospital, they've had a new PEG tube fitted. Um, a lot of the time they get discharged before their day 10, which is when we first advance and rotate the tubes. So then we would go out to their homes, do that advancing and rotating, um, doing the training, making sure that they've got a nominated carer or family member who can do it if they're unable to. Um, and then we work quite closely with our, um, so we work with Abbott, my um, trust do, but then there's also other 
obviously like Nutrition, um, but our Abbott nurse, um, she will then come out and do pump training and then we'll do training a cider. Um, yeah, so it, it can be quite varied. So one week I might just have four days worth of home visits in the nursing home and then the other day I might be on the ward <laughs> two days dealing with tube emergencies, then going to a nursing home, then doing kind of teaching and meetings. So um, yeah, it's quite nice because you're not, you've not got the same thing every day, which which is why I like the role because I, I don't, even though I, I love community and I do quite enjoy going on the wards, to me, going on the same ward every day would be quite repetitive, which is why HEF works quite well for what I like. And what would you say is the favourite part of your role? Well, tube changes, definitely. I love <laughs> I love doing the tube changes. So um, some people either love it or hate it. So I take students with me and they're like, wow, that's really fascinating. Or they're kind of turning their head away thinking, oh, that's a bit gross so yeah you've got to have a bit of a yeah don't eat your lunch before you do a tube change because they can sometimes be a bit um you can feel a bit queasy after them but I'm so used to them now so it's just it's just natural um I suppose it's with anything that you learn that you just get used to it and it's just um yeah it's quite a normal part of the day so yeah I do even though emergencies can be quite stressful I do enjoy doing the tube changes and what are some of the common conditions that you see in patients as part of your role um yeah so I see a quite a varied different um, patient conditions within my role so we within our trust we have different specialist services so um Macmillan so our palliative patients um they would go there but palliative patients with a tube would still remain with us so there's there's kind of different pathways people will go down um so there's also a specialist stroke service which we cover the tubes, but we don't cover the nutrition support patients. So um, different different routes to go down. So, um, yeah, so stroke, um, we can do the palliative cancers if they don't fall under a specialist service. Um, I do a lot of brain injury personally, which um, I, I really quite enjoy. It's really sad, but clinically, the patients are a lot more challenging. Um, their requirements don't add up, is what, <laughs> what the penge says. Um, you have to do a lot more research and digging. Um then we also kind of um, deal with people who may have um, had um, dysphagia. So whether that's a case of getting older or a case of a medical condition, um, there's a lot of things with we don't do tubes with people in dementia, but sometimes you may get the odd case where um, a patient got a tube, say they had a stroke um, and then they got dementia as a consequence, um, which can be quite difficult to manage with ethics but also then we can't just withdraw feeding from someone because that's yeah it's just not okay. Um, so yeah, we, we work with a really good mix of people. Um, every now and again, we'll get something that none of us have ever seen before and it'll just be thrown in. Um, it'll be this really rare neurological condition or some really rare type of cancer that we've not heard of. So it's always a bit of a learning curve and um, yeah, keeps us on our toes, definitely. Do you often work within an MDT? Um, yes, so I do. Um, as I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, um, working within an MDT is a major part of um, working as a HEF dietitian. Um, we can't just work as a solo band, even though sometimes we feel like we're, we're kind of like a little magician doing everything. It's We can't do everything. So we work very closely as alongside nurses, um, speech and language therapy are like our best buds. We work really closely next to them. Um, even people like physio, occupational therapists. Um, it's quite good in community because even though we don't see each other, we are quite proactive with speaking to each other regularly um, via email or via our technology system that we use at work um, and it, it's a really good kind of little 
routine that we all have um yeah and as i said before we have mdt meetings so anyone that kind of comes up on the gp records as they're quite complex they've got a lot of people going on we can discuss them as a team or again if there's a special case that needs to come up and we need to chat about we can we can do so yeah i think like all dietetics um even though at your point you are just you are the dietitian the mdt altogether is just an important part of healthcare and we can't really go about it to be honest so yeah i think a lot of students might find that communicating with other healthcare professionals on placement can be quite intimidating sometimes when a, when you're a student how did you develop your confidence to do this regularly as part of your role um so i think a lot of it was practice um i can remember being a student and my first two placements definitely if someone asked me to hand over to the nurse i'd just be kind of shaking in my boots and um like not knowing what to say just practicing my words um and then now so i've been ooh, how long have i been a student from so started in 2017 so that's like five years now since I've been doing placements and training overall so I'd say I'm pretty confident now so but it doesn't happen overnight it is a thing that you need practice with and kind of throwing yourself in at the deep end even if you're really anxious or really nervous that first step of doing it and then having another go maybe a week later and slowly building on that that can give you give you those skills and um, it's kind of almost like facing your fears a lot of the time um, like when you do presentation when you're a student so now I do talks and presentations all the time so it doesn't doesn't really phase me but I remember once when I was at uni and I, I can't even remember presenting because I was so nervous so it, it really does come with practice and time so don't worry if you're on placement and you're you say you're on your last placement and you're just really still quite nervous that's that's totally normal um if you've had experience before chatting to people so even if it's just kind of approaching a shop assistant or going up to the waitress and kind of asking for an extra thing little things in your life can can help build um those confidence skills um yeah i was gonna say even as a band five you still feel a bit intimidated i think just now i have a now I'm a HEF dietitian, so I have that important role within people's care, especially in tubes. Um, I do have the confidence to speak up more, but um, yeah, I still get moments in MDT where I'm just putting my hand up in the camera like, hello. <laughs> um, but yeah, don't worry, keep practicing and um, you, you'll be fine. You'll get there eventually. Can you tell us about how you would go about managing a difficult conversation with a patient and maybe even family members? Um, yeah, so this is one of the one of the things we do regularly as HEF dietitians. Um, tube feeding is um, it can be a big step for a lot of people and quite a big thing. Um, a lot of the time with people who've got progressive neurological conditions or they might be palliative or go in that way, um, we need to broach the situation of them getting a tube to pr- prolong their life really or symptom management things like that. Which um, it is a good thing really because that's helping them kind of have an extended life and maybe an improved quality of life Um, and it's getting that point across to patients and their families um, and making sure we do it kind of with sympathy and understanding Um, so I know like uh, with some of our conditions that maybe that they're a bit nervous of getting a tube and think oh no I'm going to be fine but um, it is really important that we are we're honest with the patients and explain what is expected to happen but that we want to manage it as well as we can and kind of give the best for them because that is our intention um 
with with getting a tube in the first place that can be quite a daunting process especially if a patient is eating orally um sometimes they they do find it quite difficult um but yeah it's coming across the patients with lots of sympathy using your knowledge to explain things going through questions um sometimes with these conditions as well we might visit someone kind of every four to eight weeks and we'll get to the four week mark and then we might not think they're ready to talk about that and the family might not be ready to accept and they might be finding it quite difficult at the moment so if we think that we need to discuss them at a later date if it's more appropriate that's what we that's what we do um yeah educating the patient really and providing leaflets information things for them to mull over not just kind of dropping it on a hat for them that they need to have this tube it is kind of the build up and explaining the processes to them um i think a lot of them really respect the honesty um but then some people might want to not know what's going to happen to them so you have to respect their decisions with that um yeah there's a there can also be lots of difficult conversations maybe not related with tube feeding it might be a patient with dementia in a care home that's kind of stopped eating and we have to say they've stopped eating because this is the process of the body shutting down um which is a lot we have that conversation a lot really and it is quite a sad one but it's also been realistic with a patient we don't want to feed them and prolong their death and make it uncomfortable for them so um yeah lots of difficult conversations to be had but yeah being open and being honest with them talking to your colleagues if you've got any questions um it's quite good that there's there's five of us all together that work quite closely so um yeah it's um yeah and getting practice with these difficult conversations as well you might only do one on placement but then you'll pick up more as you get qualified so even if you just do one you think that was a bit rubbish you can supervise and um ask ask your placement coordinators what can i do more um but yeah difficult conversations can happen a lot <laughs> so you mentioned before about really enjoying your tube changes mm-hmm. and i recently saw a video on your social media of you inflating a balloon on a tube um i'd love to hear some more about some of the hands-on and practical things you do as a home mental feeding dietitian yeah that that's no problem this is this is the bit where my jam comes in so um yeah i i love kind of playing about with tubes doing the tube education so yeah one of my videos there was kind of inflating a balloon gastrostomy tube um it might seem like a really simple video but um i find it really helps looking at things visually i know when i was training the visual approach really helped me so when i get students or anyone shadowing me i I try my best to show them things like that so um, even patients when I'm like this is the tube that you'll be having in and they'll be like what's a balloon and they're thinking about this big red thing going inside them and then I show them what it is and then they're like oh wow that's that's quite clever that's amazing so I think it's really quite good to have visual approaches to things so balloon volumes whether we're doing flushes whether we're doing kind of gravity feeding um with boluses rather than kind of just pushing the bolus through um showing tube changes i always kind of encourage my students if they want to see a tube train a change to come come with me um even if they might find a bit squeamish you might need to turn away just so they can understand the process of what happens because then if they can take the knowledge what they've learned from shadowing me and then explain that to a patient that's really good and as a heft dietitian we we love people who can differentiate between different types of tubes and different tube care um unfortunately everyone just thinks it's 
there's just one type of tube and they think it's just a peg or an ng but there's so many different types of tubes which have different management that's needed so um yeah by kind of educating the students and people maybe our band fives below us then hopefully that will bring the knowledge knowledge through and help others brilliant that sounds really interesting so what sort of challenges and barriers are you up against as a home mental feeding dietitian? Um, so there, there is a lot of barriers. Again, kind of tube issues that might happen. Um, we might kind of have, say, there's poor stock delivery one day and we're trying to make sure that all of our patients have emergency tubes. It could be things like that or delivery times not getting sent um, so people haven't got the equipment they need. Um that's like you had there's the practical side of things but then you also kind of have the the barriers of the patient and the care um sometimes you can get patients who aren't kind of they don't care for their tube as much as they should do or they don't understand the importance of it which then can lead to complications where we need to investigate and deal with them um we luckily a lot of our tube patients they really understand the importance um and they understand why but sometimes you may get people who I don't know, it might be in a care home, so it's being acted in their best interests, um, or potentially um, they live alone and you need to look at the social issues around it. Um, again, like most community jobs, HEF is so social. There's so many kind of barriers in between. Um, that's when we do our assessments. We're not just looking at the tubes and the nutrition. We're looking all around. When I go into a house, I'm looking... Is there any trip hazards? Is, can that person get to the kettle? Can that person get to the toilet? Where's this person going to put their pump stand? Um, has, do you think the patient's kind of got storage facilities to keep their feed and their equipment? Um, so it is kind of just doing a, a general assessment while doing the assessment. Um, sometimes I, I'll even notice things like they have a cat who keeps jumping on things. So the cat might jump and knock off their pump or um that as i said about the kettle the patient might not be able to reach the kettle which means they might not be able to make cold boiled water which means it might not be sterile and be at risk of infections for their tube um, and again this is where the mdt approach really comes in because this is when we think right does this person need extra care does this person need an assessment from occupational therapy to help them around the house um so yeah there's a lot of kind of barriers that might happen and then you might even get difficult patients who don't really want to comply with their treatments um they might have mental health issues underlying or they might not have capacity but they previously were assessed um and again it's kind of working as that mdt team and chatting to colleagues and knowing the patient as well i think that's really important i always make make sure i know little things about my patients like what are their children called i always note the de- the names of the pets down as well so then when i go in they're like oh you remember their name um yeah just little things like their likes and dislikes maybe what job they used to do before um things like that that just make it a bit more personal and getting to know them because then if there is any kind of changes or decline then you can pick up on them a little bit more than you might have if you were just walking in and not knowing them um so yeah lot there can be lots of barriers but again if we work around them and work together then we usually can find a, a good solution for them and what are some of the key factors you would consider when you actually write in a feeding regime for a patient um so there's lots of things to consider really so again what you do when you do your baseline kind of learning how to write ng feeds um, look at one looking at the feed is the patient going to be okay on a, a, a standard feed um, or do they have tolerance issues maybe um, might have kind of 
GI problems that might influence the type of feed that they need. Um, then I'd always look at the volume as well. Is the patient going to tolerate a big amount of volume or would you have to go on to maybe a smaller, higher cow per meal feed? Um, again, with the calories and feeds as well, working out their requirements, patients might have higher requirements, lower requirements. So for example, in my patients who might have cancer and COPD, their feeding requirements are quite, quite high. Um, due to kind of active disease and things going on as compared to my patients who might have acquired brain injuries because they're not really doing much and a lot of them um, are kind of bed bound and not really moving their requirements will be at the lower end um, again it's a lot of kind of trial and error with working out these things like what volume do they need what feed do they need we might start them on one feed and think they're not tolerating this so let's drop them down to another um, also kind of rates of feeds as well is quite important so um rates in i know in a hospital we kind of i would always start with maybe 100 mil per hour going for a basic and play it by ear from there if it's a completely new feed um in community we are a little less cautious with rates than people are in acute so i always got told think of a cup of tea how many cups of tea could a patient previously drink an hour so for example if it was me i could probably manage about 600 mil an hour or something really high so you don't always need to go for these really really low rates um again think about feeding time as well if the patient wants a shorter feed and they can manage it at that higher rate then as health dietitians we just say go for it if there's no tolerance issues then they can do it let them let them go for it um as sometimes then you with maybe jejunal feeding then you will have to do it a lot lower um again trial and error you might get someone who can only tolerate 50 mil an hour but then you might get another feed who can go up to the 75. So it really, really depends on a case by case basis. Um, and that's what's great about being HEF because we know our patients long term, then we can tweak it as we go. Um, a lot of the time as well, the rule book kind of go, <laughs> goes out the window. And if we can say, well, previously the requirements said that, but they're still losing weight on it, then we then automatically think, let's change it. Let's do something else. Um, so, yeah, so. Playing about with feeds, I, I always say for our HEF patients, it is because they're some of them have got quite difficult conditions and it is a lot of tweaking. But if you learn the basics of your feeds with your NGs when you're on the wards, maybe going for maybe um, really stable peg patients when you're training, then you can kind of know, get your bread and butter and then work your way up from there. Um, yeah, so uh, again, it is practice. I know. One of the things when I was on my C placement, um, I knew I was going to be working in community. So I really wanted to have kind of that HEF experience. Um, so I asked for it and I got the extra HEF experience, which I'm really grateful for, because now I think that's what helped me spur on my interest in HEF and get me my band six job. Um, as I think if I hadn't have done that, I might have just been kind of not not doing much with tubes um so if you want the tube experience ask for it whether you're on the wards um whether you're in care homes whether you're on a community service because there is there's tubes everywhere so um yeah if you don't actually don't get and there's always someone there will be willing to help and what are some of the key outcome measures that you're monitoring when you go back to review somebody who's receiving home mental feeding um so there's lots of different outcome measures so um, one of them, the main one that people automatically think of is weights. And yes, weight is an outcome measure in a lot of our patients. Some of our patients have come from hospital quite poorly and we're trying to build them back up to their baseline. So, yes, we would be focusing on weight for them. 
Um, but we don't always have to focus on weight for everybody. It's kind of my general motto is if we don't need to focus on the weight, we won't. We'll focus on the other benefits, such as kind of um, their bi- blood biochemistry um, their health, overall health to see if they're doing better in themselves, if they've got more energy. Um, if they've got kind of minimizing things, maybe if I had patients quite anemic who wasn't eating before and now we've fed them up and they are getting that extra iron and then they're feeling much more awake. They've got yeah, that energy and the benefits from that. Um, also things that I like to monitor is tolerance, especially as well, because again, that implements that you might need to change your feed if someone's not tolerating it very well. Um, quality of life as well is a massive one. Um, if someone's life is now better that they are being fed, as previously they might have been vomiting, kind of not being able to engage in activities because they were so weak, then that is a positive for us as well. Um, Again, with some of our conditions, they are degenerative, so it might not be as positive for them. But if then we can make them more comfortable, if we can kind of even giving family that option to help them with feeding. So I feel that when people get to the end of their life, a lot of the things the family can't control anymore, but they can control food and feeding, which can be a barrier for dietitians sometimes, but then can also be quite a comfort for them. So um even at the last days of life, if they're able to give them a few flushes of their medication and some kind of cool boiled water, then that, that can help them out. So, um, yeah, lots of different outcome measures to look at, not, not just weight and not just whether the feed works or not. There is kind of that social surrounding as well to look at. And very excitingly today, we've actually received some questions from our listeners and from some of your followers as well. So I've got those questions for you here, Emma. So from your community perspective, what can acute teams be doing to support you and also the patients that you see? Oh, okay. So this is, I'll try to be nice. So uh, yeah, as a, as a community, I, a community dietitian I really understand that acute are so busy and they have so many patients um but again I think it is working as a team I'm, I'm quite lucky to work in a trust where the acute dietitians and the community dietitians and the pediatric we're all together in the same office so we can all chat regularly um, which is really good because I have worked in trusts before when community and acute are so separate and we don't have a clue what the acute have done they don't know what we expect so from my point of view our trust is quite good at that um but yeah I think brilliant handovers for one (laughs) writing everything down even if it's the fact that the patient vomited once or what their cat's name is something like that we really appreciate any information we can have um otherwise I also find that acute dietitians knowing their tube skills and what type of tube it is and maybe if it's jejunal feeding and they needed a lower rate, things like that to understand, uh, which is where I think it's really key about educating the students and our band fives, uh, because they might not pick up on that until they were more experienced. So um, I like to kind of help them along where I can when I'm doing shadowing with them. So um, yeah, good hangovers, us helping out with the education and stuff. Um, tube care especially on the wards because it can sometimes be missed off Um, so doing that extra step going to the nurse and being like can you just clean this tube for me can you just have a look at this Um, when I go in the wards I go clean the tubes anyway but I know people don't necessarily have the training or might not feel comfortable with doing that so um, little things like that really help us out in the long run because if someone's had a grubby tube and then they come home and it's over granulated and infected then we have to deal with that so if that's one thing that can be eradicated then 
just makes our life a lot easier. Um, and yeah, just just handovers, making sure they've gone home with enough feeds, enough equipment, um, any little things like that are really good for us. <laughs> Great. And have you ever come across patients or maybe families that are concerned about the ingredients in the formulas that you're recommending and maybe ask to have a puree diet instead? Definitely. I've come across it before. Um, We've now kind of all the media and people saying, don't eat this, don't eat that. This has got something that gives you cancer. This is something that can poison you. Um, it can be quite hard. Luckily, majority of my patients are quite happy on their tube feeds, but you do always get the questions of, oh, well, it's got this in and, and I read that this isn't good for a patient. Or I saw on Facebook that someone said that they they saw this increases your rate of cancer by 25% or something like that. So a lot of it is using your knowledge and myth busting these things. Um, also, if a patient is feeling uncomfortable about having a certain ingredient, often me discussing kind of the scientific evidence around that, but then also saying at the end of the day, the feed is keeping them alive and the consequence of not having the feed might have been greater than what they've read about on the internet. Um, so myth-busting fact from fiction is <laughs> what dietitians do every single day. So uh, there's a lot of that. Um, we do get patients who want to go on puree diets um, and blended diets, which there is there's a lot of research in um a lot of research in the area but there's nothing that's kind of major set in stone and um, the bda have recently kind of released a statement on this which is is really helpful for us health dietitians um i don't personally work with anyone with a blended diet at the moment but it is something that's potentially on the horizon for me um, i've only ever worked kind of shadowed with it once or twice before maybe so this is something that i'm really keen to get into um the blended diets in particular they can be really good for quality of life for some patients maybe that they can't join in with a a family meal especially kind of maybe pediatric patients um it can be really quite helpful for them um luckily with a lot of my tube feeds as well some of them still can eat so they might be just on modified textures for that puree diet so getting those tasters in um which again can really help their quality of life um i do a lot with puree diets and kind of having to fortify them working quite closely along speech and language going with their advice and then if we're ever unsure of something from a texture perspective they will always help us out and then again from a nutritional perspective they get in touch with us um so yeah so a blended diet is something that i wanted to work with a lot more and there's i'm looking at the research as well it's a really great thing to read into if you're a student as well if you can shadow someone with a blended diet and see the pros and the cons that's that's good but I, I suppose not every student will get that opportunity but yeah working along um with tube feeding and puree diets or tasters as well would be um is really good to see how that helps quality of care really that's definitely a really interesting subject going forward and maybe there's more to come on that front as well like you say with the research sort of developing so our final question for you today then emma is if you could go back in time and give advice to your student self knowing everything that you know now what would that advice be i'd have a lot of things to advise my student self but i think the main thing was that you can't be perfect at everything when you're a student the, the learning happens when you're a band five. Even now I'm a band six, I'm learning things every week about tubes that I probably would have never learned before um, or never learned on placement, to be honest. If, if you think about it, placement is just kind of free opportunities for you going to different places, doing different conditions. They might not have every single um, 
condition that you want to look at. So my hospital, for example, we don't do renal, so won't be able to do renal with us. But um, yeah, so don't put yourself down if you don't get everything or you don't know everything because we're always learning. Not not everyone can know everything. And then when you specialise in something, you push a bit of the old information out and put some new information in. But that's the beauty of dietetics. You can few kind of if I was a bit bored down the line a few years, a few years down the line, and I was like, do you know what? I want to go to acute. I want to challenge myself. I want to go into maybe kind of like gastro or I wanted to go into pediatrics. Then those options are there. Um, making sure that you keep up with your CPD as well really helps with that learning. So you can make those changes if you need to. So yeah, as a student, get all the learning opportunities you can, but don't put yourself down. Um, one of the things I did as a student, which I still I still do now, is that um, I can get quite disappointed with low grades, but I've always told myself that grades are just kind of the platform to get you to the next position. Grades don't reflect if you're going to be an amazing dietitian. You might get someone who is absolutely incredible, but they're not so great at doing exams. But then you might get someone who's really great at doing exams and then really struggles with the, the confidence side of things or talking to kind of other healthcare professionals. So everyone has different skill sets and everyone has things that they're better at than others. Um, so work with that look what you're good at and kind of go down that path um, even if it's not the path that you thought you were going to go down I know when I did my um, second placement I thought I want to do acute all the way and by the end I knew I wanted to do community even though I'd not been on community um, so yeah don't be harsh on yourself um, and yeah my, my motto always is that work hard play hard so if you've done all your work at the weekend, reward yourself. Don't put you down. Even if you've had a bit of a bad week on placement, do something you enjoy, do something to relax. Because um, then that's a really good way of going into your job then and kind of a way for a way for life, really. So, yeah, you can't be perfect at everything, is what I'd probably say. <laughs> that's great advice. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for your time today, Emma, and for sharing your valuable experience with us. Emma's social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. She's got some fantastic educational resources on there. And Emma has recently launched an independent consultancy service, EFS Nutrition, which is also linked below. A huge thank you once again to New Ultra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Dietitian Cafe RD2B podcast, consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more RD2Bs. You can also follow New Ultra on social media at New Ultra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening. Our next episode will be out soon. Bye.